Hey everybody, it's Dave Fitch here, Theology and Mission Podcast, or wait, sorry, it's Theology on Mission Podcast, yeah. where theology meets culture for Christ's kingdom and mission or something like that. Mike Moore, did you have a good <laughs> Thanksgiving? I noticed that your hair is a little bit yeah. deviled today. Did you have a good yeah, Thanksgiving? Yeah, it's a little... I had a great Thanksgiving. We were out of the state, just like you. We just went to a warmer state. You went to Ohio. We went to the Pacific Ocean. So Basically, folks, I went to Ohio. He went to Hawaii. <laughs> okay. And all I could say yeah. is the guys, it's, it's good work if you can get it. And congratulations to you and Grace going to Hawaii on Thanksgiving. It's yeah. kind of a weird place to go. But did you have a good thing? Did you see any of, fa- of your family? Yeah, yeah. So my, so my folks, so my nieces, nephews, siblings, everybody. And you were with family too, right? I was with both families, Rayanne's family and my family. We were going from Ohio to Indiana, two states, by the way, that mm, not my favorite, but we went and we had a great time, (laughs) had some really wonderful family time. And so, folks, that's what we call the obligatory intro after a holiday, checking in so that you can get an idea that we really do take holidays. But you know what? We got a great podcast here. We got a great show. We got a great guest And we've been looking forward to this for quite some time, ever -hmm. since the book came out. Her name is Lisa Weaver Schwartz. She's written a book called Stained Glass Ceilings, How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. She is a professor of sociology. Lisa, can you tell us what your job title is and where you teach? Yeah, I am an assistant professor of sociology at Asbury University. Wow. Okay. And and so that means, folks, that she's important and that she knows what she's talking about when it comes to sociology. And that's really important stuff for Moore and I, because we run a program called the D-Men in Contextual Theology, which one of its foundational disciplines is the discipline of ethnography, going, being among people, learning how to listen learning how to ask questions, learning how to observe, learning how to code interviews so that we see what's happening in a particular context. Such a different approach to us and a different starting point to research than most, I think, pastors have been used to to this point. Lisa, ethnography, as opposed to like a more historical lens like Mez does with Jesus and John Wayne, or or a more, or I guess best Allison Barr is also a historian, with the with the making of biblical womanhood. You look at gender and sexual, well, mostly gender, through a sociological lens. Can you tell us like how this helps pastors like me, professors of theology like me and more, think about? gender and the issues that we are confronted with as theologians in in our various contexts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think this is a great place to start because I think these, what we're really getting at with your question is that there are differences between these disciplines that we study from. And so I, like I just said, I'm a sociologist. I'm trained in the discipline of sociology, which is different than the the history and and theology and sort of other, other disciplines that ask questions about 
you know, dissimilar, similar social spaces and phenomenon. But so coming from the discipline of sociology, sociology is data driven, I think more than those other disciplines, it is a social science. And so and when I say data driven, that sounds very cold and almost quantitative. And there are sociologists that live in this world of numbers and statistical analysis. And that is a really great way of using the sociological tradition. I do, and, and this book is based on qualitative data. So more of the ethnography that you're describing along with interviews and some other kinds of observations. But what's, I think what sets sociology apart is is sort of that attention to to data. It's it's a discipline that's developed specifically to collect, systematically collect, and to analyze and interpret specific kind of data, so social data, right? So I'm not a theologian, and I I, I think sometimes those lines are, are a little fuzzy when we talk about things like ethnography and and kind of social contextualization within the church. But sociology and theology are very, very different. As a sociologist, I, I don't deal with quite the same questions or the same kinds of data that theologians do. I'm really trained to look at what I would call social data, the, the world of what's actually going on in the world around around us that's kind of swirling and, and specifically my focus is is on, on culture right so that opens up all kinds of interesting kind of possibilities and questions but with with sociology the, the goal really is to see what is hidden and and it's it's just amazing how how much is hidden in kind of in plain sight when you start observing and, and using the tools mm. of the social sciences and so just to, to give an example of, of what that means. Like, so and maybe to backtrack a little bit first, though, this is it really is similar to history. So I, I really have have been appreciative of historians like Beth Allison Barr and, and Kristen Cobesdeme. Their, their work has, has done a great job of kind of addressing some of these similar questions, like you said, of gender and culture and power in a historical way. But one way to understand, I think, the differences between these two dis disciplines is that sociology, not only does it tend to be a little bit more systematic and it's a gathering of data, but it also seems tends to be a little bit more theoretically oriented. And, and so what that means, one example of that is as I use this language of doing gender, it's in the in the subtitle and it's kind of woven throughout the book. That is that is a theoretical concept that has emerged from the sociology of gender. And there's a lot of empirical research and theoretical research that goes along with it. And so I can kind of tap into that. And that's one of the kind of sub sub sub-themes within the book, the project that, that we're talking about here. But I think, again, so for sociology to, to kind of flesh out what is hidden, right? We don't necessarily see gender as something that we we practice, that we do, right? Unless we have um, this kind of data that it, that emerges from the social sciences to see it. And another example of this is, is the, the gender blindness is another language, bit of language that comes out from the book. It's something that, and this is what I how I describe the egalitarian seminary, Asbury that I've worked with. And it's something that, you know, they have robust theologies, but theology doesn't quite get at the lived experience, what we call lived religion in the same way that social scientific data can. Oh, oh man. So you are preaching right here, right down the, the aisle to the choir here that we often, Moore and I often end up saying things to, we won't mention any names, Mike Moore, but we we talk to New Testament scholars all the time and say, look, you don't understand. It's not enough for the biblical scholar to figure out what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans chapter one and then tell us what to do, because there's a cultural aspect both going on in Rome at the time of the writing of the 
epistle, which I think most New Testament scholars will easily get on board with, but there's something totally different going on in the context that you are preaching into, teaching into, discipling into. And to do that, you actually have to talk to people, listen to people, <clears throat> ask questions of people. We might even find out that the words that we think mean one thing don't mean that at all, and they're practiced in a totally different way. This is why in this particular time, sorry to be on a soapbox, well, in this particular time in the history of America fractured multiple cultures, we need pastors who can get out there and do ethnography. Lisa, do you have any comment on, on me getting too excited about all this? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're right. And it's really interesting when I think back to the interviews that I did with seminary students, which was the kind of primary population that I was working with for this project. It was so interesting how in, in both cases, that both of the seminaries, but but especially Asbury, the one that is more egal, is, is overtly egalitarian, these students would go on and on and in really articulate and lovely ways about the biblical context. I mean, they were very well-versed in, in not only sort of knowing the, the context and some of the historical nuances of the Kind of Roman household codes and and gender norms of the day, but they were able to really critique them and and bring 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 critical analysis and and, and talk about the church's intersection with those in, in really really sophisticated ways. But these same students, to, when when I would ask them about their own context, had very little to say. Um, and just the the I mean, so even so, the most articulate, confident students just just kind of dropped off out of the conversation at that point. I could tell that they knew there was something to be said, but just had not been been trained to think in those terms. And so, I mean, I think that just speaks to your point that this is kind of the the impulse that that we have maybe in in theological education broadly. I don't know, but um, there there is yeah. definitely is is a divide between what our religious leaders and those who are training to be religious leaders know about the biblical context, the kind of critical analysis and critical lens that they're able to bring to that versus the critical lens and, and awareness that they have of their own context and their own place in that in that context as well. Yes, yes, yes. There's really two stories going on here in this book. One is Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. One is Asbury. One is... I. I would label them reformed kind of Baptist. The other is kind of holiness evangelical to put my cards out on the table. I'm holiness evangelical. I'm Christian Missionary Alliance folks, if you don't know that out there. And, and we kind of have a, 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 a good relationship with Asbury Seminary because of that. But something that kind of, I, I don't know, if, I don't know if this is within your wheelhouse, Lisa, but it, it does appear like in, in the work of Demez Barr, Anethea Butler, Jamar Tisby, that when they talk about evangelicals, they're talking about Reformed Baptist evangelicals. And, they, and by the way, for those of us who are not Reformed Baptist evangelicals, and right now the word evangelical is problematic in and of itself for many reasons, but let's just say it's, it still works and it doesn't, but let's just say that for those of us holiness evangelicals, Hello, are you aware there's a whole nother evangelicalism out there that has nothing, well, almost nothing to do? What's the, can you comment on this relationship and why the holiness evangelicals who are different, but yet caught up in, I would say, and you, you're the one who kind of 
helps us understand caught up in gender dynamics, which are still uh, problematic. And yet there's two different things going on here between these two groups. Any comments on that? Yeah. So I think part of the story is a historical one, and you'll have to talk with some historians to flesh all of that out. But sociologically, I I will say, I mean, they're they're beyond, within sociology and history, all all of these scholars of religion, there's a a much broader and ongoing conversation about how do we define evangelical rights? Some people want to define it by the Bevington quadrilateral. Others say that it's more like practice-based. And so that, you know, that that is an, an important conversation. But sociologically, I mean, I I think that I like to think of of these identities and kind of traditions in terms of the stories that they tell. Um, not surprisingly, because I talk a lot about storytelling in the book. But one way of looking at the intersection between the the kind of Wesleyan, Arminian evangelicals and the Reformed evangelicals is that they do tell similar stories and not so much about gender, right? So but beyond gender, both both are contemporary in their contemporary context are wrestling with a lot of the same cultural issues, Christian nationalism, same-sex marriage. Those are things that these traditions are, are wrestling with in a lot the same ways. They listen to similar voices. So N.T. Wright, John Piper, C.S. Lewis are all like, they may not like all of the, the voices, but they're at least aware of, and those are the things that are in conversation. So I do think that there is some cohesion. But to your question about why when we think evangelical so often we go right to the reformed tradition i think part of it is that the reformed tradition it itself in in some circles not certainly not all but wants to be the de- def- defining characteristic of evangelicalism i think a couple of their leaders a few years ago even kind of promoted that on on social media and in some blog posts that this is you know sort of true evangelicalism um, which again is, you know, if that's how you want to define it, that's that's one way of defining it, I guess. But it is it just as as with any historic tradition, its boundaries are porous. Uh, there are many different kinds of evangelicalism. But I think to you know, at the beginning of this project, I had people ask, like, really, you want to look at a Wesleyan like Methodist seminary? I thought they were mainline, and I think it would be such a mistake to to not consider and not sort of unpack what's going on culturally in these more Arminian evangelical spaces, because they are very, very much evangelical and there's some really interesting things happening. So I I, I have a fear of defining evangelicalism too, too narrowly for exactly that reason. Yeah, that is so helpful. Hey, Mike Moore, I, I know I have a tendency to hog all the space on the show. Feel free to like barge in anytime yeah. if you have a question yeah okay i'm, I'm gonna barge in right now then okay. for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet and i and I, I know i know dave was curious about this question as well could you unpack for us a little bit how southern seminary explicitly complementarian asbury seminary ex, i'm doing scare quotes so explicitly egalitarian how they both appeal to genesis one through three and and maybe and maybe some of the gaps that you see or, or differences between both of them or even within their their reasoning of how they appeal to those texts. Yeah, this was the one thing that was so interesting just to see how students would so often appeal to Genesis three, right? The fall of humanity is a very pivotal passage in in both their construction of complementarian male headship gender polarization on one side 
And then Asbury's egalitarian approach, which is very much, I think this is why maybe you're using the scare quotes, but limited to the question of who gets to do what in, in church. So so with, with Southern, with the complementarian framework and the stories that they're telling, the fall leads to this sort of breakdown of, of gendered order, gender divisions that God intended and and leads down this sort of slippery slope to the tension between men and women who don't want to fill the roles that God intended for them, basically leads to egalitarianism, right, and, and feminism, mm. which is clearly, you know, liberal liberalism is the enemy. So at Asbury, though, the fall is also really pivotal. And so what they see is, in contrast with the, the complementarian assumption that in the beginning, you got God's creation of man and woman was included gender hierarchy and polarization. Asbury assumes the opposite, right? That at, at the beginning, everyone is equal. There are now there are differences, which is which is an interesting little twist because because even the egalitarians are very, very much attached to a gender binary. But they assume that at the fall in Genesis 3, that this sort of, you know, happy, utopic, egalitarian relationship is fractured. And then that's where sort of hierarchy and power dynamics, although they don't like to use the language of power, but that's essentially what, where that comes mm. from. So they're kind of using it in reverse, which is, is just, I think, a yeah. microcosm of how how powerful even a little tiny bit of a story can be because the rest, so much of the of, of life and community life and identity really points back to that, that part of the story in that passage. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how Genesis one to three is is so determinant of not only gender dynamics in the two different streams, but how we see power, how we see subduing the earth, Kyperian man cultural mandate. By the way, I just want to say, Elisa, that I'm Christian Missionary Alliance Holiness. Moore is CRC. Yeah, that's Christian Reformed Church for yeah. everybody who wants to know. Kuiper yeah. for Kuiper for short. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought I thought for sure he'd he'd fall into a defensive mode. Well, I'm nope. not really. No, you're you're standing up for it. Oh no no no! I, I'm not standing up for it. I'm just letting it pass me by. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, we always have a good time on this podcast. Lisa, just following up on some of this theology, on page 90, I'm reading a note here. I observed from the back of the classroom, by the way, this is classic ethnography, folks. If you want to study ethnography, Northern Seminary has a great program. I highly recommend it. Anyways, I observed from the back of the classroom one morning as the professor appealed to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, the lecture began, is the most important day in the church calendar. Thir- sorry, is the third most important day in the church calendar. The spirit is given entirely to both men and women. The speaker continued, as is salvation in Jesus. <clears throat> so the professor paused. By the way, this is great prosaic ethnography notes. Looking expectantly at the class, wouldn't you agree that God's two best gifts are given to both? The class rewarded the question with nodded agreement. Who gets to decide who gets what spiritual gift? The teacher continued. It's not you. It's not me. It's not Wayne Grudem. The answer, so obvious that no one bothered even to voice it, was the Holy Spirit. Mike Moore. Okay, so for us Pentecostals, the reason why men and women participate mutually together in ministry is because the gifts are given. 
And so I think there's a, a difference here between, well, I'm, I'm just going to toss this out here as a hypothesis, Lisa. I think there's a difference between, say, egalitarian men and women in ministry, say, in the Protestant mainline church, which I think is a politics, which diminishes the difference between genders versus the complementarian understanding of, of say, Southern Baptist, which defines difference of husband, wife, man, woman, and their roles. And the husband is over the woman in most cases, over, by the way. And then let's, let's call us Anabaptists. And now that I know you're an Anabaptist, Lisa, I'm going to really... We don't believe in over anymore. There is no over. Jesus says, not so among you, over. No usurping over. That's eliminated in the kingdom. And the gifts are participatory, mutuality, and difference is preserved between men and women. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we want men and women together in ministry, because we don't want women to become men and men to become women. We want men and women. And by the way, how we define it is, in my opinion, a cultural development. That question probably can't get in here as well. But what do you think of of the politics of gender difference as in Protestant mainline versus Southern Baptist evangelical versus what I see as the holiness and a Baptist way of framing the issue? Ooh, yeah, a lot in there. Yeah. So I think I don't know enough about the Protestant mainline. I haven't studied them. I don't have any, to use my data language, I don't have data on what that looks like. So I can't really speculate on, on the contrast there. And likewise, I'm, I'm not a theologian. And so it's, I, you know, I need to kind of stay within my, my wheelhouse and, and not speculate too much. But I do think and I don't know if I'm speaking as a sociologist or or as an Anabaptist here, but I think that the, that attention to leveling the the power dynamics to me does resonate as something that is is a valuable trajectory for for any organization that wants to be attentive to these these power dynamics um, and to human flourishing and to doing justice to to the personhood of each each member. So I think that yeah, I mean I think there's there's a lot that could be said about and and I think I, mean, I certainly you know I hope hope my book is helpful in in hard, helping faith communities and denominations to unpack some of these things. But it's just the beginning, and I I really hope that there is more good theological work like what you're suggesting coming out of maybe maybe seminaries like Northern that can help flush these things out theologically. But I I also maybe want to put in a, another little plea for the social sciences too. I think that there's there's a lot of accountability that can be built in even even across uh, disciplines and across institutions. So for sure within institutions, leveling those those power dynamics and and doing more of uh, maybe a, a kinship or a mutuality structure would would be something that that could be beneficial. But even accountability to knowledge that comes from the outside, I think might be might be something else to to consider as we look toward you know what the future of religious leadership looks like. Amen. Amen. All right, Mike, I'm going I want to ask both you and Lisa this this last question. And uh, let's let's go at it as long as it takes. But you know, this idea of public gender blindness, no differentiation between genders in public and the way we operate in public roles versus the maintaining of difference in private life, marriage, other 
aspects of private life. And and Lisa, could you just discuss a little bit about what those two dynamics are? And then I want to ask Mike and you to talk about how they work to absorb women into the power dynamics of men. Yeah, so this is this kind of separation of public gender blindness and and privatized difference comes from the the chapters on the egalitarian Asbury community. And just to sort of summarize what I think is happening in these spaces is that the the administration, the leadership has has wanted to free women to preach, to lead, to exercise churchly authority, specifically in in those roles, right? Of of, of preaching and administrating and and so but but still that's that's kind of confined to the public realm right the pulpit administrative offices who gets hired hiring is a big thing and and it has I, I, and i think I, I should name that this is this is a true story of of empowerment these the women who are in in my sample they were they were thriving in in a lot of ways and and really leaning into the the openness that this egalitarian framework was was giving to them but at the same time the the kind of identity that they carried as women was really confined to the private sphere. So their their lives as as wives and mothers specifically. And then certainly there are a lot of single women and, and women who don't have children too. But but I think what's happening is the the um the impulse to free women in in the public doesn't do anything to free them or does very little anyway to free them from the confines of, of what we would call biblical womanhood or the, the kind of evangelical framework of, of gender identity for women. And I think this is especially <clears throat> pertinent for women. There might be a version that, that happens for men too, but because historically and, and again within these kind of complementarian frameworks that, and ideologies that are bleeding in into this egalitarian in space too. So much of women's value and identity is wrapped up in their kind of nurturing capabilities and their support for their spouses in ways that w- without the awareness that that places like Asbury are bringing to the public roles and, and activities of women. Um, in consequence, a lot of the women I talked with, none of the women really identified things like the second shift, the fact that they were doing so much more nurturing and kind of household labor than than men and were struggling because of it. And so I think that kind of separation of the public and private, it, it has been a way for places like Asbury that want to maintain and really feel strongly about maintaining this binary gender difference without interfering with women's ability or at least access to leadership positions. So I think that's where it's coming out of, but it definitely, it, it is breaking down in, in that sense. Yes. Hmm. Yes. My, Mike Moore, do you see like in your own various contexts, and Mike Moore is also a, a ethnographer, in his own right. Do you see way women are invited into traditional male spaces as, you know, in attempts to empower women, but when the gender, uh, the gender blindness happens, it, it allows men to ask women to become like them and yeah. actually engaged in the same hierarchies, power dynamics that are screwing everything up in the first place comment on that yeah yeah i i think where where i see this the most is with our students at northern a lot of women tell the story of being excited to come to northern study here then to graduate and then they apply for church jobs and one that they're probably never or oftentimes not considered 
for a, a senior pastor job. But but one of the things I really do appreciate about you know Fitch's work and even Northern's work is trying to even question this idea of the senior pastor. Um, wh- wh- where did this idea come from? What does it look like to be a senior pastor? Why a senior? Why a senior pastor? And how women can quickly get absorbed into the, the culture of misusing and abusing power that's been defined mostly by men uh, in evangelicalism. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? I know you like to riff on that quite a bit. Oh, nobody needs to hear me riff on that all over again, except just to say that we need as men to become mutual in our submission one to another. And sometimes we have to, in essence, lay down the power, the dynamic of power that we play into and that we like or we use or have accumulated identity around in order to get rid of that so women can come in alongside men and something brand new can happen because if it's because if we don't do something brand new everybody knows about the history of abuse whether it's just bullying or whether it's sexual abuse or or financial abuse that that men traditionally men but sometimes women in men's roles have gotten embroiled into and i i just think this is so important and we'll never get to it unless we read books like lisa weaver schwartz stained glass ceilings, how evangelicals do gender and practice power, how evangelicals do gender and practice power. There's so much more I wish we could have talked about, and I can't do it, but one of them is gender and how gender gets developed within culture. But this will have to leave for another time because I'm sure we're going to want to have Lisa back on the podcast. I don't know if she'll say yes, but but we we sure think we want her back. But before we sign off, Lisa, are there are there final thoughts, things that are kind of stirring in your mind? Because we'd hate to end the podcast and you to be like, oh, but there's this one thing or these two things I didn't get to say. What, what are you kind of percolating in your mind right now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there is so much more to say, but I think just the fact that we're having these conversations and and I think that these things are kind of in the air in ways they weren't when I started writing the book is is really encouraging to me. And yeah, Dave, what you said a minute ago really resonated. There's there's just so much, so much to do and it can feel overwhelming. And I, I do think, you know, because, because these spaces that we've constructed, and I say we because we're all a part of it, right? We create reality as reality creates us. This is the kind of the basic sociological assumption. I think, you know, it, it is true. Like as we read books that are are difficult and heavy, like we, we've mentioned uh, Kristen Comez Dumais book, you know, other things that are coming out on Christian nationalism, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry's book is a really good example of some stuff coming from these disciplines. It can be very overwhelming. And, and I think we're, what we're learning is that some of this stuff is really baked into the evangelical bread identity, right? And so yep, it can yeah. be, I mean, and, and that's, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's sobering to think of those things. And I think we do need to be, to be sobered by them and, and to really take seriously all of these, all of these voices and the things that we're learning. But I do have a lot of optimism. I think I'm encouraged by conversations that are, are imagine, reimagining what leadership looks like, reimagining what even what church authority looks like. One thing I found is, is that in the kind of social contracts in, of these communities that I was looking at, there's this assumption of 
boosterism. Like you need to be on board completely with what has already been established. And, and I think that really does facilitate this disempowerment of, of women's voices to where in, in both of the cases that I worked with, women are, are able to thrive and lead, but to the extent that they're able and willing to just cooperate and support the structures that are already there, which of course are, are centered on, on men because of all these historical legacies. So I think there's a lot to do, but I do think as we start naming the problems, we can start addressing them, right? Which is one of the one of the benefits of, I think, this, this ethnographic approach is you, you start to see what the problems are. And I, I hope that we can find that knowledge to be empowering because once you once you recognize where things are falling apart, then you can start to address them. So I do have some hope and I, I hope that that comes through in the book too. Yeah, that was fabulous. Uh, and and re, we create reality and reality creates us. The sociology <laughs> of organizations. So important to understand. So anyways, thanks so much, Lisa, for being with us. And if you're interested in studying this, I don't do a lot of commercials for our programs, but this is so, this is so easy. This is such a layup, Mike. If you're <laughs> interested in doing the work of ethnography in your local churches and then doing the work of theological reflection in the gospel, because I do believe Jesus can disrupt and create new things through the power of the Holy Spirit if we'll submit to him. So uh, come and join us at the DMIN Contextual Theological Program, which I guess our next cohort is 2024, which is a ways away, but it'll, it'll give you a little time to think about it. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, it's been so great to be with you on another Theology on Mission pod. It's Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Over and out. Till next time.